I'm in conversation with another excellent WITS researcher, Associate Professor Joe Veri, who is also Director of the African Centre for Migration and Society. And this is a conversation in particular that we had the pleasure of recording during a week when we are celebrating the 57th um, anniversary of the origins of the Organization of African Unity and questions about regionalism and migration are particularly top of mind at this time. And I'm looking forward to exposing you to her work, who she is, but also getting stuck into some of the critical academic research coming out of Wits University and in particular the African Center for Migration and Society. Joe, thank you so much for being part of this podcast series. Sure. Thanks for the thanks for the invitation. Let's start by getting to know you a little bit. Intellectual biography is always fascinating. A curious person like yourself could have had many different paths. I could have spoken to you as a Shakespeare scholar. I might have spoken to you as someone interested in metaphysics and philosophy. But here we are, and you are director of the African Center for Migration and Society. How did you come to have a deep academic and also activism academic interest in this area of research? Um, it kind of came about by accident. Um, I undertook my, my undergrad in the, the UK in biological sciences and genetics and struggled with the laboratory. It was not my field um, and realised that there were linkages to issues around global health there. Um, so went on to do a master's, which the plan was it was going to be in parasitology. I thought working with malaria, etc. But I had an excellent tutor who forced me to move out of my comfort zone and take courses looking at public health policy and health economics. Um, and from there, I came to Johannesburg to what is now the Witts Reproductive Health Institute for my master's research project. Um, which was in inner city Joburg in 2000 and, um, 2003, um, looking at issues around migration um, of men, mostly from KZN, um, who were currently living in the migrant worker hostels that were still physically present and still are now on the edge of the city, and looking at issues around HIV and STIs, sexually transmitted infections. Um, and from there, really began to learn about the city, to learn about South Africa, um, and realized just how important issues around migration and mobility are, but how they're left out of looking at public health issues, and at the time, particularly looking at HIV. That is deeply fascinating to me, Joe, and I'll tell you why, because for interesting historical reasons, the academy gets carved up into faculties, departments, and never shall we meet other than perhaps at the pub. But cross-disciplinary studies that have become all the rage perhaps in the last couple of decades more so than in previous parts of the history of the university are critically important, right? So you've got a background, um, however triggering it might be, in, say, biology, and then it meets with public health and in terms also with questions around cityscape. Your initial background in the early part of your academic career, looking back now, is very important, isn't it? Because in order to understand even a topic we'll come back to later, disease and othering, it is so important, and I want you to speak into this, for everyone to have fundamentals across a range of disciplines so that we do social sciences in a way that is synoptic rather than fetishizing one particular discipline. 
Absolutely. And I think, I mean, the center ACMS is, a, is an interesting and dynamic space because it sits in the School of Social Sciences, hosted by the school um, within the Faculty of Humanities. And the center brings together people with a very direct, diverse range of, of academic backgrounds, but also people who've got different practitioner backgrounds. Um, so working with individuals who perhaps have got art backgrounds, people from um, creative writing, through to people who are kind of your more hardcore, as it were, political scientists. And we run our own degree program, um, Honours, Masters and PhD in Migration and Displacement. And it's an interdisciplinary degree. And what I find really kind of energizing and interesting about the center is that we do get students who come from different spaces and they recognize that there are issues of social concern that don't fit within um, any disciplinary silo. And the thing I think the center does and we strive to do and I hope we are achieving is supporting students and exploring that. Um, and for us, it means that we are able to work across departments, schools, faculties. I still do quite a lot of work with the School of Public Health, which is where I did my PhD. Um, and so being able to engage, as you say, across those spaces um, and really finding ways to sort of look at these complex issues that we can't on our own engage with. Let's talk about borders, which is a critically important part of your scholarship. Borders are constructs that have been imposed on us going back at least to the late 19th century when colonial masters divvied up different parts of the region. But the consequences live in in contemporary politics and the experiences of persons that do not sound or look like host country citizens. How destructive has it really, really been for the prospects of a pan-African thriving Africa that there has been so much national identitarian politics that have resulted in divisive policies at national level across the region? And South Africa is no different. And maybe we can take it as an exemplar of Afrophobia and xenophobia. And how much of your work has been located trying to make sense of the drivers of that? I mean, it's hugely problematic, and I and I think many of my colleagues would argue that whilst it is important to recognise the role of the nation state and the importance that a nation state plays as a sort of entity and as a structure, the ways in which this has played out across the region and across the continent in many ways is about this increasing sort of focus on national uh, nationalisation, on national identity, on very much looking inward, on building physically, but also metaphorically building borders um, thicker and higher and stronger, and really working to this idea of keeping the other out. Um, and this idea that we can do it on our own, um, an idea that there is no need for others to be part of the conversations or the social fabric that keep any society running. And we're very quick to forget and ignore the way in which one borders are something that are import imported, they are a colonial import. And how I find it quite fascinating that in 2020, people who are correctly wanting to dismantle much of the colonial history that still sort of pervades the context of the region today, support the idea of these colonial imports um, and the way that borders, you know, 
cut certain communities in two. You have people who may be given um, a national identity of Mozambican, people who are given a national identity as South African, but actually we know that they are in fact from the same community and there happens to be a line drawn between the two. I'm not sure how we move past that. Mm. Yeah. Well, one one aspect of attempting to move past that is to talk about stories because stories take on a reality when they are repeated often enough, even if the objective data discount the stories that are mythical stories that have taken on a reality of their own. There are so many scholarly articles that have come out of your centre, colleagues of yours in London and even in Oxford. Um, I think about an academic um, friend of mine and uh, was studying there with me at the same time, Professor Alex Betts, who's done some fantastic work to demonstrate the net economic benefit of refugees even, and not just other categories of migrants. And we don't even have time to go into those distinctions. What is it about the stories that we tell ourselves as South Africans that result in so many false beliefs that we identify about foreign nationals and foreign African nationals in particular, being vectors of disease, stealing our jobs, quote-unquote, competing for our women and our girlfriends, even when the scholarly work that is done by academics like yourself demonstrate time and again that objective re- reality is very different to the stories that, that, that become an anchor in South Africans' perception about foreign nationals. So I, th- I think the, the main issue that I've seen, particularly in the work that I'm involved in, which does focus on issues around health and well-being, is around the fact that it's politically inconvenient um, to see foreign migrants, um, individuals who are not considered citizens by the documentations they hold, mm. um, as being part of society, as contributing, as being positive, because the failures of the state need to be found a scapegoat somewhere. Hmm. And what we see is that individuals from other countries, other contexts, tend to be used as this scapegoat. We see it within the country as well. We know the history of the way in which the Western Cape would refer to individuals from the Eastern Cape, for example, and the ways in which we see challenges within different regions of metros, for example, um, and how cities themselves become these spaces of so-called difference and spaces of exceptionalism. And it really is about, you know, finding ways that that individuals can make sense in their minds of where the state has failed, because it is convenient, because it is something that, that meets a political rhetoric. It's not the fault of the politicians. It's not the fault of the citizenry. It's the fault of people from Zimbabwe, which is why our public health care system is struggling. And then um, there's a conundrum and, and, there. There's almost like a double aspect or a double forms of discrimination that the xenophobia presents as. There's the scapegoating, but I've also seen you writing more recently around how many of the foreign nationals that are settling in South Africa. And and by the way, I want to ask a parenthetical question. 
Can you also help me out here in terms of appropriate language, right? So do correct me if the language is not the most useful language for reducing xenophobia. But foreign nationals that are within the borders of South Africa, we scapegoat them when there's political mileage in doing so. But you've also drawn attention to, ironically enough, how we do the opposite during times of pandemic, which is to render them invisible. Yeah, I mean, and and I I think that I'm not alone in the the sort of migrant rights world and in in individuals who work within more sort of academic spaces around issues of migration and health. It has been very surprising in the current moment in South Africa in the context of COVID-19, just how absent from the debate and the discussion foreign nationals have been. So we've moved from uh, a sort of a prevailing norm where we have the state framing foreign migrants as these diseased bodies who are to blame for poor health, bringing disease into the country. But once we do have a pandemic that is linked to infectious disease, suddenly we're not looking at that group anymore. Um, and it's about excluding people in a way that, as you say, they, they're made invisible, they're silenced, they're potentially being left out of these system res responses that we're seeing. And there is huge concern about what that's going to mean moving forward. Um, I think we're very early on um, in, in what's going to be a very difficult 18, 24-month period. And I think we're yet to see some of the implications and affects of that. We know that there, for example, have been huge challenges for Zimbabweans who have voluntary, voluntarily repatriated to Zimbabwe, a lack of support from the South African states to ensure that there have been screening and testing services, just by example. So we need to really watch why it's convenient to then exclude a group when previously it was convenient to focus on them. It's interesting how there's an internal irrationality, and perhaps not surprisingly so, in that kind of state-sponsored xenophobia, isn't it? Because on the one hand, if I view the other as a carrier of disease that they are bringing into our country, quote-unquote, you would have thought that the rational response to then contain a community outbreak is to make sure that you are, for selfish, if not for moral reasons, targeting the very group that you think are responsible for the disease burden. And yet, while we talk about, for example, what happens in South African prisons, another conversation that is absent from the public discussion around our response to COVID-19, Joe, seems to be, for example, what happens inside detention centres such as Lindella that are also ripe for a virus to get a grip on overcrowded individuals. Absolutely. And we've, you know, we, we, if we look at HIV and TB, for example, um, work over the last 15, 20 years that has been trying to engage with the authorities in spaces, for example, detention centers, but also in other areas where we know that foreign nationals are struggling to access basic health care. And we persistently see the ways in which these groups are left behind. And as you say, a basic, basic public health 101 is that when we're looking at infectious diseases, we need to include everyone in our responses because it's not going to sit only with somebody who is perceived to be an outsider. Infectious diseases, we hear this all the time, they don't discriminate. Infectious diseases don't care about these imported border walls. And until we're better reacting and responding to that, we're going to continue to struggle. And I'm not alone in having called for the fact that currently at the regional level, um, and South Africa in particular, 
our responses to HIV and tuberculosis don't engage with issues of movement and migration. And so our healthcare systems aren't able to engage with those who move. If you require continuity of treatment, which we know is central and key to addressing um, HIV, but if you can't access your drugs somewhere else, you are going to run into trouble. And this, this affects South Africans incredibly when they are moving within the country. Um, so this need for a migration aware or a mobility competent health system is required. And this is where language, I think, becomes really important because this isn't about focusing on the refugee or the asylum seeker or mm. the undocumented migrant. This is about recognizing we live and work in a region where mobility is ever present. People move for a range of reasons, predominantly in search of improved livelihood opportunities. And health is a part of that. And our responses need to engage and consider that in a much more generalized way. And that's what I want to move to next in our final segment. I want to talk specifically about borders and movements across the region and also within big metropolitan areas like Johannesburg. Let's start with the latter. And this is not so much about South African citizenship versus non-South African citizens residing within the borders of South Africa. I wonder whether we can pick up on perhaps a class dynamic. In terms of the apartheid spatial planning of a city such as Johannesburg, if we take it as an example, Joe, how does it exacerbate the experience of and our response to the pandemic just quite literally in terms of its geography and architecture? I mean, you know, we have to acknowledge that the um, apartheid project, the apartheid city, is something that has succeeded in what it was set out to do, and it, it, it remains today, and we haven't addressed that. So we do see these class divides. We do see very clear um, spatial divides around burden of disease, whether we're looking at COVID-19, whether we're looking at TB, whether we're looking at hypertension. And um, we need to recognize that the way cities function, particularly the post-apartheid context and a complicated space like Johannesburg, requires some really careful urban health um, engagement. Urban health tends to be particularly off the agenda. Mm. So we have people and colleagues and many excellent people who are looking to work out how to better restructure cities. But sometimes we're not engaging on what that means for health and well-being, particularly in terms of breaking up um, and removing the ways that these barriers and boundaries exist. But what's interesting in Joburg is whether we look at COVID-19 and measles and, and the anti-vaccination movement is another good example here, is that who is it that is actually um, based in the spaces where we see the initial explosion of, of infections? And anti-vaccination and measles is really interesting because it's assumed that it would be people living on the periphery, people living in informal areas, et cetera, where vaccination rates would be low and we would be seeing, for example, more measles. We actually see it breaking out in the northern suburbs around private schools. And mm. um, we need to be better thinking about that because we have this level of othering going on within our cities where it's considered those who are more wealthy are assumed to be the ones who are fit and healthy. And those who are less wealthy and less well off are assumed to be those who are the contagious in the city. And this is often how our, our society responds to the health conditions and needs that, that we see in, the, in a city that's as segregated as Johannesburg. Which leads me neatly to a question that I've often wondered whether between experts there's orthodoxy or whether you reasonably disagree on the data when it comes to the impact of migrants 
on the health system. What is that impact? And is it the case that our system is overburdened by, quote-unquote, health tourists that flock into the country? Or in terms of intra-provincial travel, from poorer provinces to a province such as Gauteng? So I think we have to start from the sort of basic recognition that the healthcare system across the country is struggling. And people, whether they are considered indigenous to a certain space or somebody who is considered to have moved there, struggles to access healthcare. This is the same for South Africans and non-nationals alike. If you are reliant on the public healthcare system, you struggle to access care. We know that there are excellent good practice examples in certain spaces, but at a general level. So when we look at what's happening there, we can then start looking at, is there a relationship in some way between whom the patient group is and whether a certain space is struggling more? And the short answer is we don't actually have enough data to be able to say, and I'd be wrong to make a claim around this. But what we do know from the data that does exist and from the anecdotal work that has been done from good in-depth qualitative work, we know that there are not health tourists. So health tourists are are defined as somebody who deliberately travels from one country to another in order to seek healthcare. We have so little evidence of that taking place. Border areas are different. A border region is different. You might find that a facility, a primary healthcare clinic, or perhaps a hospital where women are able to seek antenatal care and deliver safely, that might be closer to a border on the other side. So it could be that you travel across an international border to access care, but that's different to health tourism. We hear many myths around people coming to the city. Um, Johannesburg is a good example. Ever since I arrived in, in Joburg in 2003, I've heard a narrative about this mythical bus that once a week comes to Hillbrow and it drops off a whole busload of pregnant Zimbabwean women who apparently then deliver their babies in Hillbrow and then get back on the bus the following week when another busload arrive. Hmm. And the prevalence of this urban myth is phenomenal. Interviews I've run at different times with different healthcare workers in different facilities, individuals who are involved in healthcare provision at different levels, this bus comes up and it's sort of a metaphor for ways of blaming. Um, and, and yes, we do see parts of the country where we have a higher proportion of non-nationals of foreign migrants So they will be more represented in those facilities, in a city, Johannesburg, for example. But if that's where journalists, if that's where researchers, if that's where postgrad students focus all their research, the only data we then have is about those spaces. So we start rarefying those spaces. They start being taken to be generalizable across the country. And we start seeing individuals drawing false claims about blaming foreign nationals. The other thing linked to that is the way that the fiscus plans. So when we're looking at how individual facilities are given certain budgets, those are based on certain population numbers that are assumed to be in those areas. And those population numbers are taken as static. They're taken as static from census, from community surveys, and those themselves don't look at issues of urban growth. And they don't look at issues of mobility. Mm. So the number you're planning for, there's always going to be a lag in the actual number of individuals um, that those services need to, to reach. Finally, we often condescend to citizens, particularly the poorest of the poor, 
by treating them as objects of social policy rather than co-creators of solutions that will affect their own lives in the most profound possible ways. In our response to the pandemic, whether we're talking of migrant workers and uh, migrants who are living inside South Africa or South African citizens who are on the outskirts of our societies, literally and figuratively, economically, socially and politically, Joe, do you think that the approach of government thus far have been sufficiently rooted in a bottom-up manner in communities or do you think that we have at times resorted to a kind of paternalistic state that in a top-down manner provide edicts that may or may not resonate with people. And I'm asking that in part because sometimes the gazetted regulations for how we must deal with the pandemic astoundingly feel as if they are not consistent with the lived experiences of many of the most vulnerable people that are subjected to those rules. Um, I Yes. <laughs> I mean, whether we're looking at the response at the moment to COVID or some other responses, but particularly now if we, we take the issue of COVID, as you, you've indicated, I would argue that we have absolutely missed any community engaged bottom up response. We have not been, we have not learned from the wealth of evidence and experience that South Africa has a rich history in learning how to engage to develop improved responses to HIV, to tuberculosis. We know the importance of working at community level in building responses collectively, of co-creating. We have a civil society movement that exists to do that. Um, and why that has been left out, particularly at this stage, I, I'm, I'm baffled. Um, I acknowledge and understand that the immediate response didn't really have time for that. And I do understand that. And I do believe that we needed that immediate hard lockdown. But we're now, what, two months in, and I am incredibly concerned about the, the not only the lack of buy-in at a community level, because there hasn't been consultation and engagement, but also I'm hearing increasingly worrying reports around how people are understanding what coronavirus is, how people are understanding what it means if somebody is found to be infected. Um, fear and confusion around the way that the stigma around COVID-19 is, is emerging. And what does that mean for the way that we're going to see potentially very violent outbreaks at community level no. on responding to those who may be found to be positive? Um, and I'm particularly concerned about spaces where we have foreign nationals or groups who are considered to be other um, for example, individuals um, in the sex work community, um, members of LGBT communities, for example. And those communities can be then re-identified as being an incorrectly, absolutely incorrectly blamed um, for, for disease being present. And we've seen this in other contexts. We've seen this particularly around HIV. So there's a real concern about that lack of engagement at the community level, um, which is not only about the regulations, but is also about community understanding, interpretation, how people are dealing. Um, and I think this goes across all sectors of, of society, but particularly those who, who are left on the periphery, both socially and physically. Professor Joe Vieri, Director of the African Centre for Migration and Society at the University of Edwards-Rand, thank you for your excellence in research and also for your excellent public communication of that research, which is a different skill set. And I'm glad that both of those were brought to bear in this podcast.